external. It is mostly about the internal. It's not a, religion is not mainly about your hands and feet, what they do. It's about your heart and how you respond to who God is in, in your life. And in the last few weeks, he's been kind of taking this idea of faith and turning it, it on its head. Uh, remember, uh, I, think, I think in our culture, we can often think, uh, okay, this concept of faith, especially in the, in the, in the religious setting, uh, what this means is we have to have a watertight faith. We can't have doubts. But the fact of the matter is we saw in that guy who was looking for healing uh, for his son, uh, Jesus is okay with doubts. Uh, he, he embraces them. Even as he wants us to move further and further in, in putting our faith in him, that man said, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. That was good enough for Jesus. He, he was able to work with that. And then, of course, last week, Jesus went on to say, actually, the faith that I really want, truly, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you have childlike faith. So Jesus has been changing our thinking, our, our, our way of, uh, our perspective on all these different things, and it's with that backdrop, all of that in contrast to what we see today, scholars say, of all of the issues that Jesus disrupted, of all of the ways that he, he flipped the status quo way of thinking, here's the greatest one that in, in which he differed from the ethics of how the world works, and that is on the issue of greatness. What is greatness, and how do we pursue it? Uh, he just completely changes the mold for how we think about it. And it's beautiful, it's powerful, it's in the one sense profoundly easy to pursue, uh, but in the other sense incredibly hard to as well. So what we're going to look at today from this text are three things. One, what this call to greatness is that Jesus lays out for us. Uh, two, the challenge of it. And then third, we're going to look at the one who calls us. So we're going to look at the call of greatness, the challenge, and then the caller. Okay, so first, let's, what is the call? Uh, to pick up in the story, uh, the, the first part of, of the text in chapter 9, verses 33, says, They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. I just think this is hilarious. I mean, yeah, they kept quiet. Uh, they were feeling sheepish. Why? Because they had been living with the dude who, if there's anybody who ever embraced selfless leadership, it was Jesus. And here they are arguing about, oh, who's, who's greater, guys? Who's greater? Not only that, Jesus had literally, if you remember two weeks back when we looked at the text just before this, Jesus had just predicted that he was going to die and rise again to life. In other words, give his life for people. And here they are arguing about who is the greatest among them. It gets better. Uh, the next uh, little vignette of a story, not too much further down the road, uh, actually, figuratively and literally, uh, in Mark 10, it says, And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Uh, skipping down to verse 41, when the, the other 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Yeah, absolutely, they became indignant. They were trying to outposition, outmaneuver each uh, these other disciples to have more power and glory and all of that. Uh, if you remember from a long time ago, uh, the, the source of Peter's gospel here, the one, uh, excuse me, of, of Mark's gospel is Peter. Uh, going back even to the early first century, uh, early church leaders, uh, said that the source material for Mark was Peter. He, Peter was telling Mark, here's what happened. So you got to figure, Peter, when he was recounting these stories to Mark, he's like, you got to include this one. This is where James and John tried to, tried to outposition me. Um, why would they do this? I mean, and by the way, just to save text and uh, time and space, Jesus had, for a 
third time now, predicted that he was going to die and rise again right before this incident. So in other words, we have two little vignettes of stories where the guys are arguing about who's the greatest, and both of them follow immediately after Jesus saying he's going to die and rise again. What is that all about? We're going to think about that more in depth here in a second, but on, at, at, a, uh, at, a, at a, a bottom line level, superficially didn't yet understand who Jesus is and how he was the Messiah and why that mattered. They thought, okay, you're going to come in your glory. We want that. Never mind, we don't understand this whole dying part. They wanted the glory. Um, and so they were, they were looking for that. Now, why does this matter? Why, why, do we, why am I taking the time to say this? It's interesting here. When Jesus makes this call, he, he talks about what true greatness is. He talks about in verse uh, 42 and 43, he, he calls them together. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Gentiles being people not of, of the Jewish faith. Uh, their rulers ru- lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Here's what I think is happening uh, for the disciples then and the disciples now. You can't just think that this calling is just for those people over there. It's a struggle for those people over there. If it's something that the disciples, even those most intimately close to him, struggle with. What is the call? Uh, the call is, is put out two places, but here it is uh, clearly. Chapter 9, verse 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be very last and the servant of all. Uh, the call is, uh, how does one become great? It's to serve others, of course. Uh, the, the last will be first. Uh, here's what is amazing about this call. There's a number of, of thoughts here, and we'll go through these quickly. Uh, the, what's amazing to me is this first little word here. He says, anyone who wants to be great. Anyone. By giving this definition, Jesus is saying everybody can be great because everybody can serve. In fact, that's how Martin Luther King Jr. put it. He said, yeah, these are his words. He said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. It seems to me it's incredibly easy in our 21st century, let alone Silicon Valley, to define our worth by our role. Is it not? But what Jesus is saying is it's not so much whether you're an engineer or a bus driver or a student or a CEO of a startup as it matters of you serving others and looking to others' interests. Uh, he goes on to say, anyone who wants to, wants to be first must be very last and the servant of all. To emphasize this point, he takes the children whom he placed among them, taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Uh, if you were here last week, we talked about how little children at that time, this would have been an absolute shocker because they, in the Greco-Roman world, children had very little, if no dignity at all, if any dignity at all. And so for Jesus to take children and to, and to put them in the limelight, the disciples would have been like, are you serious? And Jesus is saying, if you want to serve, you must serve you must have your eyes open to serve and think about even the least of these, even people that you would otherwise not normally see. I have a friend who's in his late 40s, and uh, he works at a company in San Jose. Uh, he's an engineer. He's doing an awesome, he has he, an awesome job at his work. Uh, and he's one of those rare cases of he actually started as an intern 
uh, back in the day. And he rose up through the company. Now he's director of operations. So he's just doing a, a great job. I got to know him better uh, through a sports league that we were playing in for, for a number of years. And every year he would have a team come out. And on that team, there would be uh, a number of people from his work there. And it was interesting. There was always people below him on the corporate ladder scale of things from his work. And, uh, and then a few people uh, ab above him. And when I was playing with them, playing with these guys, it just would come up. I mean, it's not like I was interviewing them, but they would just tell me how cool of a guy they thought uh, my buddy was. And they just talk about he's a, he's a man of integrity. I heard a couple of them say that in different ways. This guy just, he's good character. Uh, one guy was telling me that he had helped, he had helped him uh, advance in his career. Another guy I know, he was also telling me, uh, he was telling me this, what my buddy helped him through a rough patch in his marriage. His marriage was falling apart, and, and my buddy came alongside and helped him. My friend at that company has an open-door policy uh, to his office. He has, you know, he's in one of the wings, you know, the big, big wig spot. But he has an open-door policy that anybody at any time can come in and just talk to him. And what that means is all these interns come in because, you know, there's, if you're an intern, that's what you want to do. You go hang out with that guy. But he just helps them. He, he just answers them. He's there for them. He makes himself available, not only in terms of the professional sense, but also in terms of the uh, personal sense. He's just there for them. And I asked him one time about this. I said, man, there's all these guys who like really have, you know, really look at you in this light. And he said, yeah, David, I mean, he, he's, he's Christian, a man of faith. He said, you know, this is, I do this because it's what Jesus has done. It's what he calls me to. But, I, you know, I, real, I remember very clearly what it was like being an intern myself. When literally at this same company, I love this company, people were shutting the door in my face as an intern. He's like, I don't want that to happen again. I want to be there for people. Jesus said, anyone who wants to be first must be very last and servant of all. Do you have your eyes open to all the people who are around you, where you're at? Um, are you looking to serve them? Now, that's what Jesus is saying is true greatness. Anyone who is first must be very last and servant of all. Here's what is fascinating to me about, about this. It just hit me this week. Is Jesus is not saying to these guys, hey guys, you're arguing about greatness. Okay, guys, that is just so unspiritual. You know, just stop. I mean, that's, we're above that. Okay, we don't, it's not about greatness. No, Jesus says, pursue greatness. Greatness is worth pursuing. Pursue it. It's just it's typically in a way that we wouldn't otherwise think of it to be. Um, and we see that here in, the, in, the, in a little bit uh, in, these, in this text, text too. Jesus says, there's rewards. Uh, you know, for instance, he says, here's the logic. Be last in order to be first. Now, you might say, David, that's pie in the sky stuff. Is it talking about the next life? And, you know, just be a servant so that next life you'll be taken care of. Well, yeah, there's a part of that. And we'll look at that. But it's actually here and now. Be last so that you can be first. David, where are you going with that? Well, take the idea. Uh, that happens a number of places in the scriptures where it says he exalts the humble as he, as he brings down the, pride, the proud. Have you noticed in our, you know, society, over the last few decades, there's been this huge craze on uh, servant leadership. Have you guys seen this? There's servant leadership, and I'm not talking in the church, by the way. I'm just talking just out there. There's, there's this thing about servant leadership. We gotta, servant leadership is a desirable way to lead. I looked into it. Uh, there's this guy back in 1970s where it, it started to come from. Um, well, first came from the Bible, but we'll get to that here in a second. But this guy named Robert Greenleaf wrote an essay on servant leadership. It started to take off then. And where it really exploded into the limelight was with that book, Good to Great. Have you guys read that book or, or seen it? Uh, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. 
good to great, Jim Collins, the author of this book, uh, put together this, this um, research paper, is essentially what it is. It's looking at all the data. It's, looking, it's, it's an empirical research paper on what makes companies go from good, ho-hum, to great. There's that word. Great, making them a great company. That either fledgling companies that are starting out or companies that need to turn around and just need to get better. And what he does is he looks at all of the information. He interviews employees. He looks at all the spreadsheets. And he determines as objectively as he possibly can what makes a company great. And what's fascinating is what he finds is things like pursuing to, to serve others before yourself actually isn't just a nice concept, isn't just a nice thing to do. It actually propels companies to be great. Uh, listen to this. I just picked out a couple of these uh, quotes. I'll read, I'll read a few because they're so good. Here's Jim Collins writing. He said, we were surprised, shocked really, to discover the type of leadership required for turning a good company into a great one. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who make headlines and become celebrities, the good to great leaders seem to have come from Mars. Self-effacing, quiet, reserved, even shy, these leaders are a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. Here's another quote. In contrast to the very eye-centric style of comparison leaders, we were struck by how the good to great leaders didn't talk about themselves. During interviews with the good to great leaders, they'd talk about the company and the contributions of other executives as long as we'd like but would deflect discussion about their own contributions. When pressed to talk about themselves, they'd say things like, I hope I'm not sounding like a big shot. Or if the board hadn't picked such a great successors, you probably wouldn't be talking to me today. Or did I, have to do it? did I have to do with that? Oh, it sounds so self-serving. I don't think I can take much credit. We were blessed with marvelous people. It wasn't just false modesty. Those who worked with or wrote about the good to great leaders continually used similar words. And here I just love this last thought. Given that this type of leadership cuts against the grain of conventional wisdom, cuts against our idea of greatness, especially the belief that we need to be larger than life saviors with big personalities to transform companies, it is important to note that this is an empirical finding, not an ideological one. Which you got to think he wrote that. He's just like, oh man, let me, you know, this is, these are a lot of values from the Bible here that are propelling companies Good to great. Now, is that the only way to run or have a successful company? Of course not. Uh, and Jim Collins is not making that point himself. He just said, look, I'm looking at the data, and I don't have the number in front of me, but I think it was 80% of the case studies of the, of the great companies he looked at had, had this style of leadership. Serving others first. putting That propelled them to greatness. Um, and I just, it's so fascinating to me. This is surprising. This is shocking, really. That we've, this is what we found. And yet, this is what Jesus said 2,000 years ago. Uh, this is how it works. The last will be first. It's rewarding in this life. But then it's also rewarding in the next. Uh, real briefly on this. Um, this is a verse that wasn't read, but chapter 9, verse 41. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose the reward. And an even greater Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. I love what Jesus is saying it takes to be great. Start a big company and change the world. See, that's a good thing. Wonderful. That's not what he says. He says, giving somebody a cup of water and welcoming them. Um, we can welcome people today. We could do that literally in this room. Um, 
I, uh, I want to read a text here from a good buddy of mine who visited last week. We've been roommates for five years um, through college and then, and then I, my, my grad work. Um, he visited last week for the, the child dedication. One of his family members um, was, was being dedicated. And, uh, and he called one of you out in terms of, um, uh, in terms of uh, your ministry in this. And I'll change uh, this person's name because I don't want to embarrass you. Um, but he said this. He said, so good to see you guys today and visit Current. It was such a great service and really enjoyed uh, meeting the people I did. Jane, I'll call her, especially was great in greeting me when I was just standing around with Lucas, his little guy. I saw her do that with one other woman she didn't seem to know either. That is huge, he said. And you might say, huge? Like, how's that huge? Uh, Jesus says it's huge. You welcome even the little ones, the people that you just would otherwise over, overlook. He says, it's like you're, you're welcoming me. You're, you're welcoming the one who sent me. Now, practically speaking, you've heard me say this before, but as a church, we just want to be welcoming to you if you're new. And we want to really try to create that culture. That's a hard culture to create. It's hard to keep in the DNA. Why? Because it's fun catching up with friends. It's fun catching up with everybody we haven't seen in a week or since Wednesday at current group or whatever it might mean. It means keeping our eyes open to folks who aren't yet in the community, welcoming them in. It means putting aside catching up with friends. It means getting over maybe even our introvertedness because perhaps somebody who is introverted has come and said, I, you know what, I've got to give this uh, another shot, going to church. It can, be, it can lead to the most life-giving thing. Um, last, here, here's, a, here's a thought for us to think about this, take away from here in terms of this thought, and then we'll move on. Uh, from Martin Luther King Jr., who I believe had a little bit of credibility when it comes to serving others, being your advocate. He said this, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? That's the call. Here's the challenge. Uh, as we've already noted, uh, the problem of this call doesn't just exist over there for the disciples. It's not just those Gentile rulers, those people over there, who, by the way, were pretty horrible back then. I mean, Caesar, King Herod, they were horrible. They were closer to tyrants than, 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 uh, than we, we have nowadays. And it, they're just saying, okay, it's not just over there. It's in you guys. And what's scary about this is the disciples had all the information to have known better. They had been spending time with Jesus. They should have known. But check out James and John's hearts. They were trying to manipulate Jesus. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, they came up here. They came to him and essentially asked for a blank check. Uh, verse 35, chapter 10, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I mean, yeah. That's interesting when someone was used for that. But what's really interesting, what's, what's, what's important to see and not miss here is what Jesus asks them in return. I think it's a question we easily slip past, go on over, not think it's a big deal, but it's profoundly important. Jesus asks them, what do you want me to do for you? He asks them, what do you want? This is such an important question in the book of Mark. It's asked a number of times uh, throughout the book. First time it's asked is back in uh, Mark 3 or so. I'd have to look. If I, if I didn't write it down. Uh, with John the Baptist in prison. Uh, King Herod is throwing a party for everybody. This is kind of a well-to-do. Everybody's there. All the VIPs party is there. And there's this, there's this young gal there who danced for everybody. She pleased the king enough that he said, he asked her this question, what would you have me do for you? What do you want? Name it. 
to half the kingdom, and it's yours. She searched her heart, and she came back. She said, I want the head of John the Baptist. Um, the reason for that is John the Baptist had been in jail because he had called out, John had called out that her mother had left her first husband to go live with Herod, and it was just kind of this, you know, awkward thing. And she couldn't stand that. Herod asked her, what do you want? And she said, I want revenge. That's what was there underneath the surface. The, uh, surface. the third time is used, second time is the one the text we're looking at today. The third time this question is used is the very next text in the story. The very next story. Uh, we're, we're not going to look at next week, but that's just to keep moving through the book of Mark. Uh, there's this man named Bartimaeus who was born blind. And he had heard rumors that Jesus had healed people, even blind people perhaps. He, he, he had probably heard these rumors, and when Jesus was on the way, he's there, and he, he hears Jesus coming, he says, he yells out, Jesus, have mercy on me. And the crowd, it's interesting, basically tells him to shut up, like don't bother him. Um, but he persists, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus hears him, calls Bartimaeus to him, and then asks him this question, what would you want me to do for you? Verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? Same exact wording. What do you want? And Bartimaeus said, I want to see. I want healing. I want deliverance. When James and John are asked this question, what do you want? Their answer is, we want power. We want to sit at your right hand and your left hand. We want to claim. We want influence. We want power. That's what was underneath their hearts. This question probes our hearts, our motives, and our values. It's the most important question God asks of us. And it's, an, it's a question that I believe we frequently get wrong, the answer wrong to. I know I do. Um, perhaps the same question would surface our motives today. What do you want? You know, our answer could be, uh, you know, like, like the woman with Herod, uh, to settle a score. It could be like Bartimaeus in a sense of, well, we just want a healing. We want, we want his provision. Or it could be like James and John, and what do you want? What we really want is power. Um, perhaps for some of you, what you want is power. You want to make a name for yourself. You want to be known for, and then fill in the blank. Um, you may not pray this prayer officially. It might not, you know, might not articulate it out loud uh, or when you formally you know, kneel in prayer. But it's the meditation of your heart that you think about. Um, you want power. It's a powerful question of what do you want. And Jesus continues to ask it today. It reveals what's underneath the surface. And I think here's the challenge. Often, and more often than we care to admit, if we really search ourselves, and I know this is true for me, what we want deeply is mine. Um, or my precious, if you're on Lord of the Rings illustration. Uh, time and time again, the disciples serve to illuminate our own hearts. But it is a hard read, is it not? I mean, if you really do the work of searching your own heart and, and motives, uh, the disciples, they, make, they bring it to bear. They illuminate it, what's going on in us. Uh, listen to how Halden Caulfield, the teenager, teenage uh, narrator of Catcher in the Rye, wrote about his attraction to Jesus, but his ambivalence to, toward his followers. He said, I'm kind of an atheist. I like Jesus and all, but I don't care too much for the other stuff in the Bible. Take the disciples, for instance. They annoy the hell out of me. Excuse me. If you want to know the truth, 
they were all right after Jesus was dead and all, but while he was alive, they were about as much use to him as a hole in the head. All they did was keep letting him down. I like almost anybody in the Bible better than the disciples. Boy, do I vibe with that sentiment. Only the more I study the disciples, the more I realize how grossly similar I am to them. It's heavy to read about the disciples. And yet at the same time, it is overwhelmingly uplifting to read about them. Because this is why Jesus came. He came for them. He came for you and me. This is the caller. Mark 10, uh, starting in verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant, of course, with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who regarded as, uh, are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, their high uh, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you, and here he goes on to say, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be great uh, first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is just a profoundly important verse here. Um, but you know what amazes me the most about it? is Jesus is literally, in saying these words, modeling what he had just said about pursuing greatness. How's that? He is, he is working with disciples who are as much used to him as a hole in the head. Je these guys had spent all their time with him. They had heard about the predictions of his death and resurrection, how he's going to la lay down his life. And here's the moment where Jesus finally says, you know what, there's just too many extra straws on this camel's back. You're gone. No. Where the disciples are stubborn, impatient, and selfish, Jesus, we see here in this text, is gracious, patient, and selfless. There is one other time that Jesus, that, excuse me, there's one other time in Mark's gospel where the question is asked, what do you want me to do for you? And it's at the very end of Mark. Uh, Pilate has Jesus in his custody. He knows Jesus has been falsely accused, falsely tried. It's just a mockery of the whole thing. He knows he has just this guiltless person in front of him. Doesn't know what to do. He's feeling the pressure that he has to move forward because people are saying he needs to be, he needs to be punished. He's like, I don't know what to do. So he takes Jesus out in front of the crowd, the religious leader, the crowds, which, by the way, in this sense, is saying this represents humanity here, this crowd, uh, the place of the text. This is humanity. And Pilate asks the crowd, what do you want me to do with this Jesus? What do you want? And they scream back, crucify him. Jesus, the Son of God, who, who had every right to come and say, serve me, become my slave, became a slave to our desires, our wicked hearts, saying, you know what? We don't want you changing things up. We like our mind the way we have it. We don't want you to change things up. Crucify him. And the Son of Man paid our ransom. And in so doing, he freed us. Now, what did he free us from? He freed us from things like finding our ultimate worth and value and things like taking revenge. Some of us can become consumed with things like taking revenge. But you don't have to watch the movie Remnant to know that that doesn't really pay off in the end. It doesn't really satisfy. Or even pursuing power and acclaim, influence, even those who happen to get it are often saying, look, it's it just, uh, there's got to be something more. He died a slave to, to free us. That's true freedom. 
but it's also true greatness uh, because he gave his life for us uh, that we can get, have life in him. Um, you know, I, 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 I wrote this down for what it was worth. It sounded better in my head before I wrote this down. But he said he was not so concerned in getting the team to develop the bottom line, but developing certain people on that team. I think that's part of what we need to think about in the Silicon Valley. You guys are leaders here. You, know, you, you guys are leaders. And if I, I, I can't begin to think. I mean, could you imagine what will happen is we start living more like what Jesus calls us to here, serving others above our own, could you imagine what that will do in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, in our society? I mean, it would almost be too beautiful to behold. All right, let's pray. Father, you're too beautiful to behold. We know from your scripture, it says, of Jesus, you were equal with God. Though he was equal with you, the Father, he laid. He considered himself nothing and became even a slave, dying on the cross. What a model of the last shall be first. Father, you, you are first in all things, and yet you became very last to save us from ourselves. And so we love you, and we thank you, and we also say here and now that we can't do any of this without your help. So would you, would you help your love for us, your goodness, your gospel melt into our hearts in an increasing measure that we might begin to live more like the one who called us into it. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again,